Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I am Jimmy Moyaha, standing in for Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on the latest developments in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. On the show today, we take a look at the Border Management Authority's latest works uh, and how they are preparing for the festive season. Uh, We speak to the Institute of Directors in South Africa around the appointment of state-owned entity directors and how that should be done versus how it is being done. Uh, We take a look at the department, or we get a sense of why the government should be prioritizing tourism in terms of economic growth and the contribution that tourism has uh, in terms of overall contribution towards the economy. We speak to the Department of Education as well around their concerns over the pens down parties after matric exams, as matric exams near an end. And then we also reflect on the legacy of Henry Kissinger. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The Border Management Authority has been working tirelessly. Um, there were some developments over the weekend, but also we're seeing an increase in uh, border activity with the festive season here. Uh, I'm joined by the Deputy Assistant Commissioner responsible for operations and law enforcement at the Border Management Authority to take a look at this. Uh, that is Stefan van Niel. Uh, good day, Stefan. Thanks so much for taking the time. What has the BMA been up to in terms of improving operations and logistics at our borders ahead of the busiest time of of our year. Thank you very much for having us. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. We had to uh, prepare, you know, uh, for the f- upcoming festive season. And I think the first thing is that what's assisting us now is that we no longer, you know, fragmented in our approach to uh, border security related matters. But the fact that the BMA is established allow us for a single command and control setting from where we actually dispatch all the responsibilities that we need to do within that uh, environment. In addition to that, obviously, the, fe- the festive plan also include then how do we, uh, you know, increase capacity at our ports because we're fully aware that they increase, uh, you know, travel movement and obviously put pressure on the ports. We need to, we needed to uh, open up, you know, additional working stations at uh, some of our ports and that requires additional capacity. And also to just note that some of our ports with some countries neighboring, we agreed that we uh, are going to extend operating hours uh, for some of the ports in this all in the name of you know ease of traffic through our ports of entry. Stefan, how complex is this time for the BMA? I mean, we're, we're not only dealing with the movement of people, we're also dealing with the movement of goods across border and obviously there are going to be those that want to move uh, illicit goods and things that they shouldn't be moving. How much harder does this time of the year become for the BMA? It is absolutely, you know, one of those periods uh, that we do have, uh, you know, a lot of pressure on the ports. And as we know, in general, ports are very busy places. But, you know, with the festive coming up and with a number of people traveling out of the country mainly because, you know, Zimbabweans who are here for the entire year, and Mozambicans as well as Basutu, they all travel back to their respective countries. And obviously, that brings a number of, uh, you know, challenges. I mean, even issues of, you know, documents that are not uh, correct. People are claiming that they do not have documents and they expect you to allow them to proceed to the country because you cannot really hold on to them. 
as well as you know uh, on the return you find people coming through our borderlines and uh, it's our responsibility then to to be responsive to all of these realities where we arrest people who are not complying people who are involved in criminal uh, activities people who are coming through along our borderlines where they shouldn't be coming through by deploying extra staff along the borderline and uh, yeah this is how we normally prepare for this and you know one uh, important cock of this uh, you know essential cock of this is normally the support that we get from neighboring countries but i can tell you that's an area that we still are struggling with we are asking you know authorities on the other side uh, to help us in managing our borders collectively because it's in our interest that we do this as uh, within the region but we don't always get the support from neighboring countries so we are actually pretty much on our own but what we can uh, not allow is to say that you know the, uh, the authority of the state is completely undermined and therefore we are putting po- plans in place that obviously are responsive to most of the challenges that we are experiencing at our ports especially during the festive season Stefan, you touched on the collaboration between neighboring countries and other strategic partners. And just on that, on Saturday night, there was uh, significant uh, progress in that regard with the uh, interception uh, operations of the the buses that were found or stopped at the Bridge border post carrying suspected trafficking of 400 children. Can you just shed some light on operations like that and what uh, other initiatives the BMA will put in place through other collaborations with other departments, perhaps like uh, Arms Corps and the like, to ensure the safety of uh, those crossing our borders? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, you know, the incident on Saturday was a particular uh, incident where we actually had operations launch, and perhaps not only on Saturday night, but the entire day, as we would know that this time of the year, you know, schools on the northern uh, neighbors are closing, and uh, we have seen previously that Children are sent uh, to South Africa without, you know, uh, accompanied by any uh, adult. And we want to stop that because in law it's not allowed that a child travel across borders without, you know, the required, um, you know, accompanied uh, adults. But also to, you know, uh, prevent the um, loose uh, arrangements of parents in South Africa asking a bus driver to bring in their children on the outside. So... We obviously, from time to time, we are responsive to some of the international intelligence reports and as well as to say that, you know, in our work that we are doing is to be vigilant in, uh, you know, some of these uh, areas that we pick up. In the case of uh, on the weekend was pretty much, you know, what we had uh, found uh, on buses uh, traveling uh, into South Africa. Now, this was not a convoy. I think it should be very much or clearly understood because... Buses are traveling between ourselves and Zimbabwe on a daily basis, and you would find a number of 60 to 75 buses within a 24-hour cycle. So when we number, mention the number of buses that we have uh, you know, intercepted, say 42 of them, it's not necessarily that they were all lined up with all these children inside, but as you go uh, you know, do the random inspection, stop vehicles and see if people are complying, or they even come out of the bus and present themselves so you are able then to pick up what is it that uh, is in line with what uh, the law asks us to do and uh, that's pretty much one of those cases yeah well we wish you all of the best with the busy time uh, and we thank you for keeping our borders uh, safe and operational uh, that's Stefan Fanil who is the deputy assistant commissioner responsible for operations and law enforcement at the border management authority you're listening to money web at midday
We're taking a look now at uh, state-owned entities and appointing the right individuals for state-owned entities. I'm joined by uh, Professor Parmi Natasan, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Institute of Directors in South Africa, to take a look at this. Um, Prof. Natasan, good day. Thanks so much for taking the time. How do we ensure that we appoint the right people at uh, any entity, not just state-owned entities? Good afternoon. Um, Yeah, I think it's something we've been speaking about for a very long time because directorship is quite a serious role uh, played within organizations and we've seen the consequences where where it isn't done properly or, you know, serious um, errors are made, misconduct, etc. So I think it's really important to consider what competencies uh, are being sought before appointments are made. So what technical knowledge, um, experience, qualifications, etc. we want individuals to have in order for them to understand the business and apply their business judgment and ultimately make good decisions for the organization. And then, of course, we're looking for social and personal skills. So how do they interact in a boardroom, add value, etc. And then most importantly, we are also looking for a certain moral compass, right, to do the right thing for the organization you're serving and not for your individual needs or wants. So I think those are the three things, yeah, that you need to look at. Mm. Prof. Natasan, we've got a very clear governance structure that um, sort of governs and dictates this. I mean, I'm referring to uh, King 4, obviously. The importance of uh, legislation or policy or procedures such as that in ensuring that we don't have um, board appointees driving the wrong agendas or um, shareholders that have appointed them asserting a certain level of dominance that almost takes away the independence or the ability of these uh, appointed individuals to conduct what they're elected to do. How important is it to be referring to framework like this and relying on framework like this? I think it's very critical. You know, King 4 sets out governance best practice, which should be followed. I think the challenge comes in is that King 4 has to work within the legislative framework that already exists for entities. And I think um, in in the public sector, what I'm seeing is either the enabling legislation or the shareholder compact documents or the MOIs, etc., sort of blur the lines and and don't necessarily um, comply with what King 4 is recommending. So that's where you'll see the issue of you know, non-consideration really of competencies when appointments are made because the way it works currently in our public sector is government or the minister makes appointments to these boards. And one has to wonder what criteria they're taking into account when we know that there's a political play here. Um, And then, you know, also with blurring of lines, again, you know, in, in a normal governance structure, you have a shareholder who appoints a board. The board are the ones with the liability and obligations towards the entity they should therefore be free to you know exercise their own discretion and make up their own minds independently on decisions but far too often we see shareholder being a minister representing government is making decisions is wanting to set strategy is wanting to you know guide the board on how they must make the decisions instead of letting them apply their minds. And I mean, also we see that the shareholder wants to appoint CEOs very often. And even that messes with the governance structure because the CEO should be accountable to their board and should be appointed by their board. Because how can you put a board in place? Tell them legally in terms of our Companies Act, etc. you have all these legal duties and potential liability when things go wrong. But then your hands are almost tied on the other end in terms of making decisions. It doesn't make sense. 
Prof Natasan, would you say this is one of the reasons why we're seeing um, a limited effectiveness of boards? I mean, I, one example that comes to mind is uh, the post offices board. Um, and just from an accountability point of view as well, is this why we're not seeing that boards are held to the same standards as perhaps in the private sector because of this blurred relationship once the shareholder appoints the board members? Absolutely. Look, I think there's challenges for boards in both the private and public sector. So we're not saying the private sector boards are perfect either. I think all of them need to really look at their nominations processes and how they're finding candidates, etc. I think it's just exacerbated in the public sector because of this political influence. Now, if we're appointing candidates because of the a political stance or uh, in relationships with a certain political party, etc., and not necessarily looking at whether they have the competencies to serve as a director, obviously there's going to be impact to the organization. So that board itself is not going to be performing and, and that's going to flow down to the organization not performing, unfortunately. What do we make of the rotation of certain uh, board members between SOEs? You'll find that a CFO of one SOE will jump off and become CFO of another SOE. How does that uh, factor into, one, the limitation of bringing in new and experienced personnel, but two, also from a transparency and a governance point of view? Look, I think uh, if you're looking at CFO specifically, that's an employment position, not necessarily a non-executive director position, right? So, yes, we may have executives moving from one entity to the other. Um, and that's not a, in itself a problem. I think the problem comes in when there's a lack of transparency on the reasons they left the, the initial entity. So oftentimes there they are, you know, reasons related to performance, misconduct, etc. And these, you know, may or may not be public and, and, and oftentimes settlements are reached with confidentiality clauses, etc. And then people are just appointed elsewhere. And then that really leads to a lack of, of accountability in the end. A lot, more, a lot more needs to be done to ensure that we have uh, the right people in the right positions, especially at state-owned entities. Thanks so much, Prof. That's Prof. Parmi Natasan, who is the CEO of the Institute of Directors in South Africa, giving us her thoughts on appointing the right individuals. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. With December here, we typically see tourism numbers go up and the tourism sector for the last couple of years has been on the receiving end of COVID, but also a number of other factors. And travel has sort of returned to the fold in a greater way. And I think local and international tourism is quite important for the country. And another man who shares these sentiments is the chair of SA Tourism, that's Tim Harris, who's joining me now to take a look at the role tourism can play in boosting the economy. Uh, Good afternoon, uh, Tim. Thanks so much for taking the time. You expressed that tourism could be a contributing factor to GDP and could be a priority sector. Why do you say this? I think most South Africans are very aware of the quality of tourism experiences right across the length and breadth of South Africa. We're one of the world's most extraordinary tourist destinations with a huge range of world-class experiences to suit any uh, pocket, really. And the job of South African tourism is to take that message to the world, to our most important markets, and to convince high-spending travelers to come and spend their foreign exchange here. And the reason why we're optimistic about that mission is because of all the constraints to South Africa's growth. Tourism is a very fast way of, of leapfrogging those constraints and creating jobs and firing up growth quickly. Tourism 
uh, cell cycles are a couple of months at most. And if you start to win hearts and minds globally around people's willingness and intention to travel to South Africa, you can convert that into real economic growth and jobs very, very quickly. Tim, you said that government should be prioritizing the tourism sector because of the role it can play in terms of job creation and GDP growth. We do have a Department of Tourism. What should they be doing? I mean, we've recently seen things around the uh, UK Tottenham deal that didn't go through. We've recently seen from private sector the advert that was done with Trevor Noah. What should government be doing from their perspective to bolster this tourism narrative? Firstly, South African tourism is very much part of the national government efforts towards that bolstering. There is a kind of supply side, demand side dynamic between the Department of Tourism and South African tourism. Both of us, in a meaningful way, report into the tourism minister, Patricia DeLille. But our colleagues in the Department of Tourism are working on supply side issues, things like the infrastructure of tourism in the country, the access through things like visas, essentially building out the product side by helping the tourism industry to grow their offering. And then at South African Tourism, we're responsible for generating and converting that demand. So we do things like global marketing across the 11 offices that we run around the world to firstly increase awareness of South Africa as a a competitive and often bucket list tourist destination, but then most importantly, helping to convert that awareness into actual sales. So we're very much part of that team. Obviously, we do track the sentiments and the awareness globally from our major markets. We run a survey quarterly across 24 countries that make up our biggest competitors as well as our biggest source markets. And we have tracked since COVID a a drop-off in awareness of South Africa. So that's something that we're redoubling our efforts to tackle. But when we speak to potential travelers, the top three reasons why they tell us they want to travel are extraordinary scenery, the value for money, and the breadth of culture in South Africa. So those are the elements of our brand that are standing out. Obviously, we're also tracking the reasons why people might not want to come. Some of the constraints to conversion. So travelers who are aware of South Africa but are concerned about actually booking, they have issues around our perceptions as a welcoming destination. And this is a concerning thing for us at South African Tourism. We have to really fix that perception. Secondly, obviously, the old one of safety and security, where I know there's a very ambitious program by the minister and the department to tackle security concerns in tourism. And then thirdly, there's a flag around political climate, which could be anything from upcoming elections to, I guess, things like load shedding. But basically, we need to make sure that we're overcoming these constraints and really leveraging those strong elements of our brand to grow the tourism numbers. And the prize, if we do that, is significant. Right now, we we have just south of 1.4 million people uh, employed in tourism in South Africa. And we calculate that over the next 15 years, we could add more than 300,000 new jobs in tourism if we get this marketing right. And that would see the GDP contribution from tourism grow from just under 7% to to well over or close to 8.5%. So there is a significant prize if we manage the tourism product and the marketing of that product around the world. And that's what the team at South African Tourism, together with the department, but also with the tourism industry, that's what we're very focused on doing.
Tim, you mentioned that uh, you want this to become a priority sector. What does that mean and how do we achieve that if both demand side is working hard and supply side is working hard? What needs to be done to make this a priority sector? I mean, obviously, like any government entity, we're looking for the maintenance and expansion of our budgets, of our financial resources. We understand that that's a, a, it's a difficult time fiscally. But certainly making the case for tourism as a great as great value for money in terms of the spend required to market the country is something that we'll be lobbying for internally. But there's other things that we can do to maximize the impact of that spend. You know, we calculate at South African Tourism, we spend close to a billion rand a year on marketing the country. That's just on the marketing spend, not on overheads, etc. But the tourism industry as a whole, it's estimated spends about 30 billion rand marketing their products around the world. So one of the reasons for our a strong focus led by the minister to build a bridge between South African tourism and the tourism sector, the private sector in terms of marketing, is to align those budgets. And essentially to say, instead of us spending our money in one way and the tourism industry spending its money in another, let's align that spending so that we essentially ensure a much bigger budget in practice. Obviously, when you're spending rands marketing the country around the world, they don't go as far as, as the hard currencies. So ensuring that collaboration and alignment is a very, very neat way of making our money go further. And I think you've seen a, a very good example of that recently with a campaign led by the tourism industry around Trevor Noah, you know, harnessing him as an ambassador for the country. He's one of the most recognizable South Africans. That ad that they commissioned a few weeks ago was very funny and very impactful and very viral. And it was done using private sector funding but fully aligned with South African tourism's marketing efforts and actually using the South African tourism uh, destination brand lockup at the end of the ad. So hopefully that's a, an example to the country of how this collaboration is starting to happen in practice. And we can look forward to much more of that in the coming months. That's a really big focus of us at South African Tourism. Thanks, Tim. That's Tim Harris, a board chair at SA Tourism on the role of tourism in South Africa. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The Department of Basic Education is concerned around is concerned over the pens down parties that take place after matriculants are finished with their exams. I'm joined on the line by DBE's spokesperson Elijah Mslanga to take a look at this. Elijah, thanks so much for taking the time. What are the concerns here? Uh, good afternoon, Jimmy. Thank you so much. Well, the concern is around the safety of our young people in these parties because almost every year there will be an incident where somebody or several of them lose their lives. So we are concerned because when the minister announces the metric results, she often has to announce results of people who have passed away as a result of these pen-down patches. Elijah, what needs to be done in terms of uh, addressing these concerns in t- from a solution point of view? Uh, it's, it's one thing to always have concerns, but let's let's solve the problem. Should we be looking at collaborative programs between December and January, whether it's between DBE, Department of Tertiary Education, or even the Social Development Department, to ensure that matriculants have something to look forward to beyond just the alcoholism? That's true. You know, we find that we need to also work very closely with parents because they are responsible of these pens down parties, which is them who give money to to their children. Uh, these uh, parties are huge money spinners for the organizers because they make a lot of profit from selling alcohol, but you also find that they sell alcohol to underage people who shouldn't be exposed to alcohol. 
but even those that uh, can consume alcohol, um, the unintended consequences of what is taking place there ends up in them losing their lives. There's their drownings, their stabbings. There are people being shot dead and others being hit by cars. There are just a lot of risks that are there. So we need a very close relationship with our parents who should also understand that our children, as much as we love them and we wish them to go celebrate, it needs to be done safely. Alcohol shouldn't be a big factor in this because you can be happy, you can do a party without alcohol. We just need to begin to change our mind and reboot the way we think about this. Elijah, as part of that reboot, should we be looking at addressing legislation? Not so much because the, the laws are there. I mean, the, the liquor legislation in terms of the restrictions are there, even in terms of the establishments, the taverns and other places where alcohol is sold. The, 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 the law is there. So maybe it's in the enforcement where the police should also assist us. That's why in one of our messages, we did encourage the law enforcement agencies to do patrols in these areas, to also go in to check if the people that are there are in a legitimate establishment or whether those people are allowed to be there in terms of the law. Where the law is uh, contravened, action needs to follow. I mean, we cannot forget that disaster of Eastern Cape at Bay, where we found kids that were underage in that establishment, overcrowded, no proper ventilation, all of those things. So we really need to appeal to law enforcement agencies to also play their part. But most of all, it is the parents who need to take responsibility for their own children. We are just raising awareness about the dangers of these things, but uh, it's, it's a collaborative effort that is required. Yeah, speaking of that collaborative effort, let's uh, work on those uh, readiness programs. I think the Department of Social Development, Department of Basic Education and the Department of Tertiary Education can all come together to have this conversation and should all come together uh, in as much as they are stakeholders like parents and community on one side. I think we also owe it to our young people to educate them on these things before we send them out into the world. Thanks, Elijah. That's Elijah Mtlanga, Department of Basic Education spokesperson on their concerns around pens down parties top stories to keep your eyes and ears on recently henry kissinger passed away and we're reflecting on the legacy that he left behind and what the world will remember him by i'm joined on the line by professor john stremlau of Wits university he's also a daily maverick columnist good day prof stremlau thanks so much for taking the time what is henry kissinger's legacy well, it's mixed, and uh, it depends on where you're sitting and how old you are. Since uh, I, on the verge of 80, I was politicized by civil rights and Vietnam, and while Kissinger was very concerned about um, the disengagement from Vietnam, he carpet-bombed uh, Cambodia, in my view, unnecessarily, and he showed very little interest or understanding of Southern Africa, which loomed a lot in my lifetime. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed record where he did open up uh, U.S. relations with China, and, uh, and uh, that led to detente with uh, the Soviet Union then. But uh, he was very much a Europeanist. He was born um, in Germany and, and, uh, and uh, escaped from fascism and made a career in the United States and never lost his German accent. Prof. Stremler, would you say that he'll be fondly remembered for his contributions globally? Well, that's an interesting question. We are in a different age now, and 
I'm also a veteran of the Carter Center where Jimmy Carter took the normalization of relations with China as a priority, and so he carried Kissinger's legacy forward. But he also had an interest in confidence building between the U.S. and China in Africa, which is closer to, I hope, the concerns of your listeners, but also of my personal concerns. Prof. Stremler, we can't discount the negative sides of the contributions that the late Mr. Kissinger had globally, and many will say that he condoned atrocities and that they are atrocities linked to his name. How would that boil over with the current world that we live in? And is there space or is there a place for some of the decisions that Henry Kissinger would have made at his time? That's a very interesting question. And eras are are different. And he was a child of the balance of power, European ethnic nationalisms that drove his council to, what, 12 U.S. presidents, although he was only in government from the start of the Nixon administration through the Jerry Ford administration in 77 that left power in 77. So basically from 69 to 77, uh, he was in government. And he did practice balance of power politics so that Africa was seen to be a gambit in that game, on the Cold War game, Whereas today, Africa is seen much more as an important player for its own agency. And with global challenges looming, uh, Africa becomes more important, I think, and also more important domestically. Although here we have right now an election pending in the United States, which uh, Kissinger, I think, would be appalled by the prospect of Donald Trump. And yet Kissinger went along with Nixon's southern strategy that made uh, uh, people comfortable with their prejudices rather than address those prejudices and move on in a more integrated and inclusive way. So, you know, Kissinger was a tool of the Republican Party leaders in those days, and uh, the Republican Party leaders set in train a process which brought forth uh, today uh, uh, Donald Trump, who is, as the economist leader, Uh, had uh, uh, a week or so ago the great danger in 2024. Prof Stremler, a lot lot of people have described Henry um, as having been uh, hot-tempered and somewhat unscrupulous in his personal life as well as in his uh, professional life. Is that your interpretation of his life as you reflect on what you know about the late man? (laughs) Well, I didn't know him personally, uh, and I did know people who worked for him, and uh, they would tend to confirm that. Uh, On the other hand, uh, I was very much in my early career part of the Rockefeller Foundation network, and he married an assistant to Nancy, to Nelson Rockefeller, and he's still married to her. So I I, I really don't want to comment on the the personal dimensions of him. Uh, Being in in high policy is a tough game, but I take my cues from Barack Obama, who was very civilized, <laughs> and I just don't think that there is room for temper tantrums, but I didn't experience one directly from him, but I have heard that uh, he was pretty hot-tempered. Thanks very much, Prof. Uh, Prof. John Stremlau of Wits University. Uh, he's also a Daily Maverick columnist, giving us uh, his thoughts on the legacy of Henry Kissinger. 
That's been the show for today. Uh, tune in to MoneyWeb at midday, live at noon during weekdays, and then available as a podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye.